So if you would turn to the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. And let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have to come together in this way and to share each other's lives, to share uh, also in your life in us. And we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to die on the cross for us to take our place. And uh, we, we honor him always, Lord, but especially on this first Sunday of the month when we uh, partake of uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, as the church has done from the very beginning, uh, we join with generations of believers in partaking of the bread and cup. And we'll do that in a bit, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity that you give us. Uh, we do pray that you will help us as we study your word, uh, help us to have understanding, and having understanding, help us to apply it to our lives. Uh, we know, Father, that we need to grow in grace. We know that we need to mature in our spiritual lives. And we, just, we know that you have given us the tools to do that through the Word of God. And you've given us the tools to do that through the, your indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you for that. Now, Lord, we open our hearts and ears and mind to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6, we have two more controversies that the Pharisees engender against Jesus. Uh, these controversies both revolve around one theme, and that is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. And the wrong understanding of the Pharisees and how Jesus corrects their understanding of the Sabbath. And there's a broader picture that you and I uh, explored last week, and that is the broader picture of law and grace. Uh, we are not under law in the church today. We are under grace. And we started to look at that last week, and we'll continue to talk about that and uh, hopefully finish that this morning. Uh, there's a great website that I've mentioned to you uh, numerous times before. It's called gotquestions.org. I know that many of you are familiar with it, uh, it's a really good website. They have a good doctrinal statement. By the way, that's the first thing you always look for. Do not just Google something biblical and find out any answer that's because the answer that comes up could be really off skewed. Uh, you know, so don't just go to a website. Uh, always the first thing you want to do, uh, and as this is kind of just a little parenthesis. The first thing you want to do is look at the doctrinal statement and make sure that it is a sound doctrinal statement. So I like this website. It's called God Questions. And uh, they define legalism this way. The word legalism does not occur in the Bible. It is a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. Legalists believe in and demand a strict adherence to rules and regulations. Doctrinally, it is a position essentially opposed to grace. Those who hold a legalistic position often fail to see the real purpose for law, 
especially the purpose of the Old Testament law of Moses, which is to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ. Well, we see that in our passage. That's exactly what we see in our passage, is how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law of that day, the scribes, how they misunderstood the law of the Sabbath, how they misunderstood what the law of the Sabbath was meant to do, meant to be, and they misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath. And so that is the background to our uh, study that we started last week and we're looking at this morning. Uh, the thing that ties these two sections of Scripture, 2.23 through 28, and 3 verses 1 to 6, is the Sabbath controversy. Jesus is claiming authority over one of the Jews' most precious, cherished institutions, and that is the Sabbath. And this is his fourth and fifth run-in with the religious leaders since chapter 2 and verse 1. And it's going to culminate in our passage this morning in verse 6, with the decision of the religious leaders to put Jesus to death. He had to go. So that's, that's uh, where we are in the book. Um, some Christians today uh, adhere to Old Testament law. They pick and choose which law they want to be under, and they sometimes divide the law into sections like the ceremonial, the legal, and the um, uh, uh, religious aspects of the law, the, the moral aspects of the law, the Ten Commandments. And they divide those and say, well, we're not under the uh, ceremonial law, but we are under the moral law. Well, you, first, the first thing for us to understand this morning is you can't divide the law. The New Testament never divides the law. Whenever it mentions the law of Moses, it is always seeing it as a unified whole. So it doesn't divide it into moral law and legal of uh, governmental law and ceremonial law. The New Testament doesn't do that. That is a construct that we humans have come up with. And so there are Christians who will put themselves, for instance, they, they will be clear that they're not supposed to bring a lamb to church to sacrifice. I mean, we, we all agree on that, right? We don't bring a lamb to church to sacrifice. So they, they agree, well, we're certainly not under the ceremonial law. We don't have to sacrifice. But we are under, and then they pick and choose what part of the law we ought to be under. I'll give you one quick example, and, and then we'll get into this Sabbath controversy. Uh, there are dietary laws in the Old Testament. And there are believers who think we should be under those dietary laws. There are believers who set their diet by what the Old Testament says about food. And the, for some, it is merely a matter of, they say, well, God came up with it, must be a better way to eat. Uh, for others, it's a means of growing close to God. It's a means in their eyes of pleasing God by keeping the dietary laws. Well, uh, again, God questions, uh, mentions this. The dietary rules were never intended to apply, to apply to anyone other than the Israelites. 
These dietary laws were never intended to apply to anyone other than the Israelites. The purpose, and this is so important for us to see, because this is the same thing that's happening in our passage with the Sabbath. The purpose of the food laws was to make the Israelites distinct from all other nations. Now, there may have been a secondary effect of it being a better diet. I don't know. But that wasn't God's intent in giving the Israelites this food restrictions, this kind of diet. The purpose was to make the Israelites distinct from other, all other nations. After this purpose had ended, the writer goes on, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's in Mark 7.19. Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark 7.19. Later, God gave the Apostle Peter a vision that implied formerly unclean animals could be eaten. Now, you may remember that from our study in the book of Acts, and that was in Acts chapter 10, where uh, God gave Peter a vision that, that implied formerly unclean animals could be eaten, where God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. When Jesus died on the cross, the writer says, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. The, this includes the laws regarding clean and unclean food. So uh, believers have a tendency, and, and I think sometimes it comes out of a good motive. They want to please God, and they think, well, this is a way I can please God. But it's not a way to please God. If law could please God, Christ wouldn't have come. If law could please God, Christ wouldn't have come, but nobody could keep the law. And so therefore, Jesus Christ had to come and he, had to, he lived out the law perfectly. He's the only one ever to live out the law perfectly. And he died for you and me on Calvary's cross. And we're going to celebrate that in the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. Uh, well, let's uh, look at where we're at in the text. We uh, have Jesus' argument. We looked at part of his argument about the true meaning of the Sabbath last week. He gave a couple of examples in verses 23 to 28. He gave the example of David in 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 to 6 where David and his men were hungry and ate the consecrated bread that was permitted only to the priests. Jesus gives that as an example of a correct understanding of the law whereas the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders had an incorrect understanding and they brought people, they robbed believers of their freedom and brought them under human traditions and human laws as they expanded upon what God said in the Old Testament concerning the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus' argument from 1 Samuel 21, 1-6, is that God did not condemn David being given the consecrated bread. And the spirit of the law took priority over its ceremonial regulations. There was a higher law, and this took precedence over ritual law. The second example that Jesus gave is not found in Mark. It's found in the parallel passage to Mark, and that is in um, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 5. And that is the example of the priest who regularly worked on the Sabbath. 
the priests in the Old Testament regularly worked on the Sabbath, and Jesus cites that as another example and another uh, argument for the correct view of the Lord's Supper. Well, we just barely got to last week, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus lays down several more principles. Uh, let me give those to you quickly. One of the things that, one of the arguments Jesus used is the Sabbath was instituted for man's, mankind's benefit and rest and, reflect, and uh, refreshment. It was not to be burdensome. Uh, it was not meant, the, law, the uh, Sabbath day was not meant to be burdensome regulations over people's lives. The Sabbath was not to be a heartless, as one writer said, a heartless despot over man. It was to be for our well-being. It was to be for the well-being of men. And so that's another of Jesus' argument for the true meaning of the Sabbath. Uh, another argument that Jesus makes in verses 27 and 28 is he says the Son of Man is what? Lord over the Sabbath. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus is the Son of Man. Well, the Son of Man, Jesus is claiming authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus is the source of the law itself. Jesus is sovereign over the use of the law. And as the representative man, he could decide how it would best be used. So once again, as we have seen him throughout the book of Mark claiming authority, we have seen Mark putting forth uh, Jesus' authority over many areas of life. We see in this passage, Jesus claiming his authority over the Sabbath. Well, a, another argument that Jesus puts forth is not found in Mark, but is found in the parallel passage in Matthew 12 and verse 7, and that is the need for mercy. And there he cites Hosea 6.6, 6, the need for mercy in Hosea 6.6, 6, which says that God desires kindness and goodwill in men, or rather, uh, one writer says about Hosea 6.6, 6, God desires kindness and goodwill in men rather than punctilious observance of tradition, uh, traditional rules. The spirit and not the letter was what was important. Well, those, those are some of the arguments that Jesus put forth uh, to straighten out the Pharisees, and their misunderstanding of the law of the Sabbath. Uh, one writer not only summarized Jesus' arguments, but saw in them a deeper significance of the Sabbath. And so I want to summarize all that Jesus said in uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, and look at this deeper significance for a few minutes. Uh, given the example of David, the Sabbath law was not merely, one writer said, was not merely one of rest, but of rest for worship. That's an important distinction. The Sabbath law was not merely one of rest, but was one for uh, rest for worship. David was in the service of the Lord 
and he needed the provision of the consecrated bread for himself and his men. Service to the Lord was worship, and the Sabbath could be broken for works of necessity. So we see a, an additional meaning of the Sabbath, not just for rest, but also rest with the purpose of worship. Rest with the purpose of worship. And the Sabbath Jesus is teaching here could be broken for works of necessity. Uh, the second significance, deeper significance of the Sabbath is the example of the priest. They ministered on the Sabbath day and that was an example to us that mankind is permitted to work when involved in worship and service. Mankind is permitted to work when involved in worship and service, even under the law. Now, we're free of the law today, and we're free of the Sabbath law, and we'll see that, but even under the law, men were permitted to work when involved in worship and service. Uh, the th third deeper significance we mentioned a moment ago, Hosea 6.6, 6, God desires kindness and goodwill rather than just rote observance of traditional rules. The fourth significance of the Sabbath, uh, deeper significance of the Sabbath, is Jesus' appeal to the original purpose of the Sabbath. It wasn't to be a taskmaster over men, it was not to, meant to create burdens, but to provide refreshment, to provide refreshment. The Sabbath was to conform to the needs of mankind, not the other way around. The Sabbath was to conform to the needs of mankind, not the other way around. And then finally, the fifth thing that this author puts forth as a deeper significance of the Sabbath is the authority of Jesus himself. He has authority, all authority, over every area of life. And this is another area that we see Mark putting forth that Jesus has authority over. Well, that was the first challenge to Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, uh, and happened in an open field. Well, the next challenge in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, happens in a synagogue. Happens in a synagogue. We read another time, he, that's Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, it's interesting, Mark just tells us that it, it was a man with a shriveled hand, but Luke, being a physician, he always gives us, whenever there are medical issues in the book of uh, uh, the, the, the Gospels or in the book of Luke or in the book of Acts, Luke, being a medical doctor, always expands a little bit. He always gives us a little more information. Uh, Luke tells us in Luke 6.6 6, that it was his right hand. I find that an interesting little tidbit about Scripture. Uh, Luke, being a physician, specifies it wasn't just any hand, that was shriveled. It was his right hand was shriveled, and he was there in his synagogue, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, you might ask yourself, well, who are the some of them? Who are the people that were looking to accuse Jesus? Well, you can almost always find the answers to your questions in the context 
of the passage. Always go to the context of the passage to seek the answer to the question that you have for Scripture. The question here is, who were the sum of them in verse 2 who were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus? Well, you just merely have to look down at verse 6 to understand who it was because it spells out, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. At the very least, it was the Pharisees who were creating this problem over the Lord's Supper. Uh, not over the Lord's Supper. I, I have to tell you what happened there. I looked at the clock and it said 10 o'clock and I thought, oh my goodness, I only have about 10 minutes and I've got a lot to cover. And I thought about the Lord's Supper. and so <laughs> There's just too many things going on up here. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, at any rate, uh, it was the Pharisees who raised this issue about the Sabbath. And so they watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Well, probably this happened, we know it happened in a synagogue. It probably happened at Capernaum. Some of them, the sum of them was the Pharisees. And interestingly enough, the Pharisees permitted the practice of medicine. They permitted healing on the Sabbath, but only if a life was in danger. So in their view, Jesus could have waited till the next day. I find it so interesting that the Pharisees cared so little for human beings. They cared so little for human beings. This man with the shriveled hand, they couldn't care less about his disability. They couldn't care less about what was, what was happening in the difficulty of his life that they said, oh, you can wait another day. Your problem isn't life-threatening. It's interesting to compare Jesus' mercy, Jesus' compassion, for human suffering. So the, the Pharisees permitted healing on the Sabbath only if a life was in danger. And their view was Jesus could wait till the next day. The man can wait till the next day. They were wanting to accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. Why? Because being a Sabbath breaker was punishable by what? Death. Was punishable by death. So they wanted to accuse Jesus. Well, verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. It was a rhetorical question. He was getting them to think. He used rhetorical questions often to get them to think. And the idea here is, what is most consistent with the purpose of the Sabbath? And the answer should have been obvious. What is most consistent with the purpose of the Sabbath? The answer should have been obvious. If you look at the parallel passage in Mark 11, Jesus points out that if a sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath day, they would pull the sheep out of the pit. Certainly, this human being is more important than a sheep. Certainly a human being is more important than the sheep. They failed 
to help the man on the Sabbath, which would have been evil. They had no compunction about plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. They didn't care about the dis disease and disfigurement and disability that so many people went through in life, which was Satan's calling card. Whenever you see a disability, whenever you see a, a, a disease, whenever you see that, remember that is not some failure on God's part. That is Satan's calling card. Because as he tempted Eve and tempted Adam, and they disobeyed God and sin came into the world, with sin came disease, came sickness, came difficulties. And so disease and disfigurement are Satan's calling card. Well, interestingly enough, they remained silent. So we read in verse 5 that he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. This is the only explicit reference in the scripture to Jesus' anger, to Jesus being angry. Now, your argument for me, I know right now you're thinking to yourself, what about when Jesus drove out the, the money changers? Well, it's true, he was probably angry in that part, but the scripture doesn't say that. Whereas the scripture here says he was angry. He was angry. He was distressed at their stubborn hearts. Now, obviously, his anger was not malicious. His anger was not malicious. His, he was responding to their obstinacy because of their pretense to love God and their indifference to the needs of men their stubborn hearts, their hardened hearts caused Jesus to be angry. Now, Jesus being the Son of God has an advantage that you and I do not have. In fact, he has many advantages that you and I do not have. But as God incarnate, as the Son of God, his anger would not be tainted. The problem is for you and me to have a righteous anger, it would... It would uh, mean that there was no part of our anger that was selfish. There was no part of our anger that was selfish. Uh, that's very difficult for human beings, but for the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, it is no problem to be righteously indignant. And Jesus was. He was angry. Now, I don't have time. I wish I did. But uh, there, it's amazing to me how many, how many of the commentators twist the, the, uh, the tense of the verbs here and twist this to, to soften that Jesus was angry. Folks, God gets angry. God gets angry. He gets angry over sin. He gets angry over the obstinate hearts of people. He gets angry over those things. We ought not to soften that. We ought not to use gymnastics with the language and the tenses of the verbs to somehow save God from his anger. God gets angry. And his anger is not tainted with selfishness. 
as ours would be. But he was angry at their stubborn hearts. And he completely restored the man. Well, let me quickly, I just have a few more minutes. Uh, let me make a couple of applications here. Um, first application is this. Do we measure, and, and I'm uh, quoting here from Larry Richards, and he says this in a great way. We must ask ourselves, do we measure spirituality by some list of do's and don'ts? Or do we take Jesus as our model and concentrate not on our acts of piety, but on a spontaneous response to the needs of others for Jesus' sake? I think the, the most important question in that quote is, when you and I think about our relationship with God and think about our spiritual growth, do we take the, our ability to keep some list of do's and don'ts? Or do we take Jesus as our model and concentrate on mercy? Richards goes on, What made the Pharisees so furious? Their entire claim to spiritual superiority was based on rigorous observation of man-made rules. Christ dared to set such things aside as irrelevant. See, our tendency will always be to make religious rules, to be governed by tradition and rules, rather than to be governed by a relationship with God based on love. We ought to love God above all. If we want to seek God, if we want to have his mercy, we love him. We respond with gratitude to his grace. We don't bring ourselves under a list of do's and don'ts. By the way, that doesn't mean there aren't rules in the New Testament. There are many rules in the New Testament. There are a couple of hundred uh, thou shalts and thou shalt nots in the New Testament. In fact, Nine of the Ten Commandments are found in the New Testament. Do you know which, the, which one is not? The Sabbath. The Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. So it's not that there are not things that we ought to do or ought not to do, but the question is, are we making life harder for ourselves and the people around us by adding to that things that are not there or by expanding on those do's and don'ts in ways that God doesn't sanction. So our tendency will always be to make religious rules, to allow tradition to govern our relationship with God by laws, not by love, to make things harder for ourselves and for others. Jesus requires us to be real and not religious. He never calls us to be religious. He has no patience for religion. I hope you've seen that as we go through the scripture. True religion doesn't consist in rules and regulations and ritual, but in mercy and love and service and worship. That's what we should concentrate on. Well, there's so much more 
but let me, let me close with, should we keep the Sabbath today? Should we keep the Sabbath today? Number one, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is not commanded in the New Testament. It's the only of the Ten Commandments, not repeated. Number two, the second answer to this question is the Scripture teaches there is no special day today. Uh, Romans chapter 14, I'm going to give you a couple of quick passages. Romans chapter 14. verses 5 and 6, and you can, you can study these later this week. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He, regard, he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. There, Romans chapter 14, Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature not gods, but now that you know God or rather that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them over uh, all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. And finally, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Colossians 2 and verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. That's a reference to the uh, law of Moses. And having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality, however, is found in Christ. We are never commanded in the New Testament to observe the Sabbath. In fact, there is no special day today unless we make it special. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this challenge that Jesus brings to the religious leaders. Oh Lord, it's always easier for us to be religious than it is to be real. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.